My guest is Benjamin Haddad. Benjamin Haddad is the Senior Director of the Europe Center at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. And in the interests of uh, transparency, I should point out, I'm a member of the advisory group of this Europe Center. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Right. Thank you for being here. So we're going to talk about France and France in all these different manifestations, domestic politics, France and the EU, transatlantic relations, and maybe if we have time, even Anglo-French relations. But let's start with the domestic scene. Three months time, there's a presidential election. We all know that. Uh, without being too presumptuous, I think we can assume that President Macron will be in the second round. What do you, how do you rate his chances of winning a second term and who do you think he'll be up against in that critical second round? I, I think at this point it's still a, a, a pretty open race. It's clear that uh, Emmanuel Macron is the front runner. Uh, he is uh, way ahead of his uh, different opponents in the first round. So if you look at the polls today, and it's been pretty stable actually in the last couple months. So he's ahead with about 24% going into the second round. And then uh, behind him, around 16, 17%, you have Marine Le Pen, who is, of course, his far right opponent in 2017, Valérie Pécresse, who is the president of the region uh, Ile-de-France, Paris, and who is the Republican candidate, so the center-right, Sarkozy's party, is around the same level as Marine Le Pen, neck and neck. Um, and then a little bit behind, you have Eric Zemmour, uh, the nationalist far-right journalist uh, who made sort of a splash at the beginning of the campaign. It was seen as a, a likely contender in the second round. Um, but as I think has struggled in the last few weeks, basically since he officially announced uh, he was running, I think his candidacy is seen as so nostalgic, so uh, looking to the past and so aggressive also in its tone. We've seen a lot of fighting, for example, at some of his rallies, that it's uh, really alienated a big part of the electorate. Um, so if the election were held today, for sure you would have Macron in the second round. He is seen as beating all of his opponents today in the second round, although, of course, it's uh, much tighter with Valérie Pécresse, who's a more moderate candidate than uh, Marine Le Pen or Éric Zemmour. You know, if you take a little bit of a, a historical uh, background here, it's really interesting because it's very hard for a French presidential incumbent to be reelected. Uh, in fact, it's almost never happened because uh, Nicolas Sarkozy was beaten in 2012, François Hollande didn't even run for re-election because he was so unpopular. Mitterrand and Chirac were both re-elected, but they were re-elected after having lost the parliamentary majority in a uh, system that we call the cohabitation. So de facto, they were not running the country. They were mostly doing foreign policy uh, so they could run against uh, an incumbent prime minister. So only uh, Charles de Gaulle was really re-elected with a parliamentary majority uh, in 1965. And even then, he was actually kind of upset that he didn't get the sort of support that he was hoping for uh, and almost resigned out of it. So the French love to hate their presidents. Uh, po politicians are usually unpopular. So the fact that Macron has been able to hold to a strong base, a steady base all across his uh, presidency is actually quite uh, impressive. Uh, what's also quite impressive is that he's rebounded in his uh, presidency. So there was a, a time where he was actually quite unpopular. Uh, we had the yellow jacket uh, crisis. And I think uh, the French are uh, pretty grateful for the way he handled the pandemic, for the way he especially had a successful vaccine rollout and, and de facto saved the French economy uh, during the, the pandemic. So I think a lot of people do consider that uh, he deserves a shot at 
really having a second term and really fulfilling the sort of economic reform agenda that he had started before the Yellow Jacket crisis. Uh, but there's still a long way to go uh, in, in the next uh, few months, of course. Well, on that reform agenda, you know, as you know, presidential elections are basically popularity contests to a large extent for people who aren't really into politics. And what is striking is that uh, Macron talks a lot about Europe, even though he knows in advance, he even makes a joke about it, that it's basically unpopular or, or best something that doesn't have much traction with, with ordinary voters. Why do you think he, even in the domestic context, I mind his role, we'll come to that in a second, as, uh, as an EU major leader, why does he keep the kind of European faith, even though he knows that he's uh, turning off people, frankly? Yeah. Uh, well, look, first, the, the clear, easiest answer to this is because he strongly believes in it. I mean, this is someone for whom it is the, 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 the a core of his political identity is the support uh, for Europe, for a reformed and stronger Europe on the international stage. And we can talk about it. Uh, and it's at the core of his party en marche, where basically he broke the traditional left-right divide largely around this European issue. And so brought the pro-Europeans from the center-right and the center-left to create the coalition that brought him to power. I think the second reason why he's so offensive uh, uh, in uh, on, on Europe is because that's sort of the lessons that he drew from Brexit, from uh, the, the, the rise of populists all across Europe, and of course in France, before his rise to power, is that pro-Europeans were on the defensive. That if you look at the Brexit debate, you know, you will have on the one hand, people who are making a very strong case for independence, for sovereignty, for freedom. And on the other hand, you have cost-benefit accountants who are basically trying to make a cautious case saying, well, we're better off in Europe because, you know, you're always going to lose a debate like this. So you have to be confident. You have to go on offense. Uh, you know, one of the things that was, I think, the most inspiring and impressive in his rallies in the uh, 2017 campaign is that you would have a lot of young people brandishing European flags, uh, you know, and so being very um, without complex, you know, a, a, a about this. And it's been at the heart of his presidency. And I think, you know, you the, the, the French know that this is part of his identity. And I think the third reason um, is because he sees some of the challenges that we're facing both domestically and on the international stage. And there is clearly a demand right now from a lot of voters for protection, for security. We see uh, international turmoil around uh, France and around Europe, of course. Uh, we see the rise of China. We see a lot of question marks about how do we deal with new technologies? How do we deal with climate change? Um, and basically, we see two paths in front of us. One of them is the path that is uh, promoted by people like Marine Le Pen or Zemmour that basically says we have to retrench to national borders. We have to go back to a very strong uh, national state uh, and get out of Europe, get out of NATO, get out of international organizations. And the other one is to say the only way we can protect ourselves and really uh, protect our citizens is at the European level. But you have to do this by really promoting uh, European defense, by really investing in European borders. Take the question of borders. It's really interesting because uh, where, where Europeans failed is that when they created the Schengen zone uh, and uh, abolished internal borders, which I think was an extraordinary success and extraordinary leap forward for the European Union, what we did not do was put the necessary resources, both the manpower and the funds into protecting our external borders. And so the message that was sent to a lot of citizens is we're not creating a sovereignty at the European level, we're just abandoning sovereignty 
altogether. Mm-hmm. And, and most people don't want that. They do want a sense of sovereignty and protection. They do, do want a sense of control over their fate and destiny. But you can make the case that it will be at the European level, but then you need to invest into these instruments. Um, and so you have this, uh, this concept that he's really been developing for the last five years, ever since his uh, famous speech at Sorbonne that sort of laid out in 2017 his vision for, uh, for Europe, this vision of European sovereignty. Of let's, let's pull together our resources to be able to really carry weight and clout uh, on the international stage and answer some of the, the fears and, and, and concerns of our citizens for protection, but do it at the European level because at the national level, we're just not relevant anymore. Well, of course, he has, in, this, in that context, kind of two audiences. He has the French domestic audience to try and convince about why France should be more European. But then, of course, the, the other member states. And do you think he's getting more success? We'll talk about the French presidency in a moment. But do you think he's had success in the past four and a half years since he was first elected in, in, in convincing his European partners about the, the righteousness and the rightness of his way? Um, so it's, a, it's obviously a glass half full. Um, you know, if you look at uh, some of the successes, first, I'm impressed at how just on a purely sort of rhetorical or conceptual standpoint, some of his uh, ideas like the question of strategic autonomy or European strategic sovereignty has percolated into the European debate. I mean, now to a point where, you know, uh, it's framing the debate even for opponents to it, by the way, which is in a way is a success. So we've seen, you know, how it, it's shifted. Uh, you mean he's launched a debate at least, even if it's not totally there yet. He's at the core of the debate, right? And so he's been the the, the agitator. He's been uh, the one pushing ideas at the European level for the last five years and forcing others to react to them. And and that's, by the way, something I've written a lot is even if, uh, you know, talking to the other Europeans, even if you, you disagree with Macron's ideas or you disagree with his vision, at least come up with an alternative vision. He's really spurred a debate about the future of Europe where I think the Merkel approach to Europe before that was uh, the sort of short-term fixes and kicking the can down the road for the bigger strategic debates. And I think he's really forcing this debate and this conversation at the European level. And, and it's winning in certain countries. I mean, I think if you look at the coalition agreement of the last German government, uh, you see the notion of strategic sovereignty being at the core of it. Um, you see uh, the, the Dutch government uh, mm-hmm. adopting the, the notion of strategic autonomy also in its last coalition uh, agreement, you see uh, uh, other countries like uh, Greece uh, adopting some of these uh, these concepts. And of course, you've been you've had big successes on on substance. The the biggest one being the EU uh, recovery package. But I think we're also making progress on issues like uh, European defense. Now it's a very long road, uh, and we have big debates ahead of us. You know, one of them is going to be the question of the future of the eurozone and uh, whether we go back to the same fiscal rules as before. COVID, and I think that's going to be a big uh, debate of 2022. There's still a lot to be done on uh, on European defense, and I think sometimes um, you know France has uh, isolated itself on on certain key strategic issues, uh, like its dialogue with Russia, which yeah. has alienated some of our partners, uh, and and uh, unfortunately, I think weakened the message on on European defense and uh, strategic. Well, well, on that particular point then, Ben, because you talk about France isolating itself beyond the substance and beyond making regular speeches of a, not just him, but also Clement Bonn, who's um, his Europe minister, about, about strategic autonomy and the role of Europe, blah, blah, blah. Uh, is there a strategy behind that to make sure that the front, you know, you, ha- you also need to convince people. And it's not just through substance, maybe, unfortunately, you, you convince people. Do you think that uh, to avoid this 
kind of self-imposed isolation. They've learned some of the lessons of the past to bring more member states on board. I think so. I think so. And, you know, what's been really interesting, I think, especially in the second part of his term, if you look at the first part, uh, he's clearly invested a lot in the relationship with Germany. And I would even say in the personal relationship with Chancellor Merkel, even anecdotally, he was uh, uh, surrounded by a lot of advisors and ministers who spoke German. And, you know, he really wanted to send a message to Berlin that that for the first time, she had a serious partner that was committed to economic reform, that was committed to budgetary balance. And he was hoping to bring Germany uh, uh, along the way on some of the reforms of the Eurozone. Um, and, and this has been a long, uh, you know, d- difficult road. But I think we had one huge success, of course, with the COVID recovery package and the precedent that it creates in terms of the EU being able to, to borrow funds to invest uh, in the future. But one thing that I think has been very positive in the last year and a half or so is that we see now France investing much more as well in partnerships with other countries, including partners that have been sometimes overlooked. Uh, I think, you know, if you look at uh, partners from the south of Europe that Mm. share a lot of the French uh, concerns, whether it's on defense or integration of the Eurozone, you've seen a really deepening of ties with Greece uh, Mm. that that was really spurred by the fact that uh, France, more than any other European countries, went to the support of Greece and its tensions with uh, Turkey when Turkey was uh, questioning that the uh, maritime sovereignty of Greece and the uh, Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, and you've seen the Franco-Greek defense pact, which I think was a success. You've seen the uh, closing of ties with Mario Draghi in Italy with the Traité du Quirinal recently, which was right. which was signed. And I think more effort towards even uh, uh, countries like uh, the Netherlands with a closing relationship or even Central and Eastern Europe. You know, there's a lot of historical and cultural misunderstanding with some of these countries to overcome. Uh, but I think we're going in the right direction. You mentioned Clément Bonne, and I think his, in this respect, he's been really particularly successful as Minister of European Affairs, especially in investing in these new partnerships and new kinds of relations, more, a more agile and flexible way to conduct European... Uh, so not just uh, focusing on the Franco-German axis, in other words. Uh, let's, move on, let's move on briefly, if I may, if we may, to the to the the French presidency, which started a couple of weeks ago. The French presidency of the European Union, and we all know there are limitations how much you can achieve in six months. In the particular case of France, complicated, of course, by this, this small matter of the French presidential elections uh, in three months' time. But uh, to what extent uh, can the French, or do you expect the French to use the presidency to further consolidate their their, their influence and their agenda in Europe beyond this, the the mere six month time period? No, I, I think clearly you see this this presidency as not being just like a sort of a six months parenthesis, but as being part of a longer uh, strategy that would ideally for Macron lead him also to his policy in the in the second term. Uh, you know, and and he is hoping to to push for some success on uh, some of the big uh, uh, items of the agenda that that have been priorities for France over the last. Five years, of course, we're going to hear a lot about digital regulation, mm. uh, digital service act, the digital markets act. They're hoping to close at least one of the two in the next uh, few months. We are going to hear about defense, where it only because it's forced on the agenda by the looming Russian aggression on Ukraine, the challenge to the European security order that it uh, entails. And I think defense might actually be a big piece of the agenda at the uh, European um, Defense Summit in uh, in March. I do hope that if we have a larger conversation about uh, European sovereignty. It's not only about defense, but clearly we should talk about energy uh, mm-hmm. and nuclear energy w- in which uh, France can also reach out to partners in Central and Eastern Europe that support uh, putting nuclear energy as one of the key green energies 
at the uh, at the European level, and that's a big uh, subject of a disagreement, as you know, between France and and Germany at the European uh, at the European level. And then we'll push some for some of uh, social agenda. He's put the question of the um, uh, minimum salary, European minimum salary, at the at the height of his uh, of his agenda. It's uh, you know it's it's a shorter uh, timeline, obviously, with the French. A presidential election, and there was a debate about whether to hold this French uh, presidency at this time. But I think, in a way, it, it sort of fits pretty well with the arc of his presidency when you see how central Europe has been to his term. Uh, I think it's fair to say that all EU member states regret the uh, the decision of the UK to, to lead the European Union uh, in the referendum vote of 2016, but and including France. Uh, having said that, do you think that France, uh, unlike other member states, sees a distinct opportunity for, uh, for itself, given the departure of the UK, to, to further, as I said earlier, consolidate its position of an, an influential role inside the European Union now that the Brits are no longer around the table? You know, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's clearly more of a challenge than an opportunity because it, it, it's a challenge because it does it will have to push France to spend even more time investing in relationships with other partners and not just relying on the Franco-German uh, relationship. Otherwise, France will be um, isolated. You know, the UK uh, was a, uh, a, always a tricky and awkward partner for France for, and within the European Union uh, in general. It was one of the most reluctant countries towards integration. It was pushing more for uh, enlargement with, I think, some mi very misguided also paths like uh, the, the Turkish candidacies and others. But at the same time, it's a very serious defense and strategic actor. Mm -hmm. It was a key partner for, for France. And I think the Brexit has thrown a wrench beyond just uh, Britain's relations within the European Union, but also in the bilateral relationship, of course. Uh, and we see that um, I think Downing Street has also uh, continue to use the opposition with uh, Paris for uh, domestic purposes. So mm -hmm. I do hope that we manage to turn uh, this page because we need a strong UK and we need a UK that's anchored to uh, Europe and to the transatlantic relationship, especially on, on defense and security issues. There can be no European defense without the UK. The UK turned down uh, Michel Barnier's offer at the time to have also a sort of security and defense uh, treaty or agreement uh, with it after um, after the uh, the withdrawal agreement, I do hope that that's an idea that we can uh, somehow uh, rekindle in the next uh, few years. It's interesting because there were some of the ideas that Macron has pushed on defense issues at the uh, European level are uh, on purpose sort of outside of the EU institutions. So if you right. look at the European Intervention Initiative, yeah. or you look at this this idea of a European Security Council that he had. Uh, uh, push forward for a while. And I think that's on, on purpose to be able to attract key uh, countries that are not in the EU, like the UK. So there is a path also to, to create more flexible sort of uh, frameworks in which to include the, uh, the United Kingdom, but you need uh, uh, the, the politics to align for this. And I think clearly uh, when you look at the level of sort of French bashing that you've seen yeah. in, in the UK over the last couple of years, that's made it extremely uh, complicated. There's been, especially with Boris Johnson, I think a very high level, almost a personal distrust between uh, between leaders. Well, you mentioned the, the strong uh, ties on defense and security between the two countries. I mean, I know a lot of people in the European Union, especially smaller member states, are always very suspicious when we talk about uh, bilateral uh, relationships. But do you think, uh, in, at least in the, in the defense and security and maybe broader foreign policy world, there is 
beyond the spat over fisheries and the Northern Ireland Protocol scope for a, a serious relaunch of a dialogue between the UK and France, with or without an EU dimension to it? I um, I hope so. I mean, you know, I've been I've been hoping so, and and uh, some of us in the Atlantic Council have been making the case. We've actually released a couple of reports for trying to uh, lay the ground for this. Uh, but but once again, I mean, if you look at the last year, the politics has just been really bad for this. Um, and and I think you know you need you need to have a, a partner that believes it's in right. his interest to to do so. Right. We in this last part of the conversation, Ben, we should talk about transatlantic relations, of course. And let's kick off by talking about AUKUS. I mean, do you think that uh, the US has made sufficient amends and made sufficient abject apologies to to President Macron to over uh, the AUKUS deal? And now things is it a new reset, or is there still a certain amount of bad blood between the two? I, you know, for me, the question is not so much about amends or bad bloods, but it's about what is AUKUS about, right? So you have the short-term crisis, which was fixed because I think both sides ended up being extremely uh, responsible about how they handled it. Um, this was really poorly managed by the United States. In a way, by the way, that was very uh, weird because I, I think there was definitely a way to bring in the French in AUKUS or, or to at least uh, warn them beforehand and avoid uh, this bilateral crisis. But I think... Uh, you know, Macron afterwards came with a very uh, clear plan to get out of this, with support in the Sahel, support for European defense uh, alongside NATO as the cornerstone for um, transatlantic uh, security and, and some cooperation in the Indo-Pacific. And so we have a, a clear path out of the, this crisis. But I think some of the structural issues that AUKUS has revealed are still here. And they're the same structural issues that we've seen for the last few years. The um, they're the same ones that we see uh, with the crisis just a month before AUKUS over uh, the uh, lack of transatlantic coordination over the Afghanistan withdrawal, which is that the U.S. is uh, shifting its priorities away from Europe to the Indo-Pacific, and that will have deep long-term consequences on European security, and especially when you look at the arc of crisis in its uh, neighborhood. When uh, President Biden, in his speech over the Afghanistan withdrawal, says that from now on, the United States will only military intervene to defend its own vital national interest, then the question you have to ask yourself, which is a completely legitimate thing to say for a U.S. president, then the question you have to ask yourself as a European is, would that cover a crisis in Libya? Would that cover a uh, crisis in Bosnia? Even, by the way, I often remind my uh, European doctors that uh, in the 90s, at the height of uh, confidence and of the unipolar uh, American unipolar moment, it still took years for the United States to get involved in uh, Bosnia and Europeans were completely powerless to stop a genocide in their own soil. Now, uh, if tomorrow that were to happen again, would the Europeans have the capabilities, the ability, the political will to mm. intervene without the United States? Would the United States want to intervene? I think there's just not a lot of appetite for this left or right in the US. So I think this, this short-term bilateral crisis is behind us and we have a, a, a good roadmap uh, to, to work between the two countries. and. You know the 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 defense, security, intelligence relationship with between the two countries is so critical, and of course, it's so critical to France's national interest that of course we're going to put AUKUS behind us. But it does. But we shouldn't forget the I think the deeper lessons, more broadly, of the last uh, a few years, of course. Okay, a final question, Ben and. Transatlanticists on both sides of the of the Atlantic uh, like to remind us all, being a bit negative or critical, that there's 
there's, there's much more in common between the two sides than there are, that, uh, there are issues which divide, and especially, obviously, in the economic sphere, never mind other spheres. And uh, do you think structures and vehicles, specifically like the, the Trade and Technology Council, are useful in that respect, or are they, in, in a sense, glorified talking shops? Well, I think all of us have agency in uh, the success or failure of these uh, instruments, you know. Uh, the question is, what do we do with them? I think having these process and frameworks for dialogue is uh, is important. And by the way, I think one of the interesting things about the TTC is to see one of the big differences between the Biden and the Obama administration towards Europe is that you've seen an increasing realization in the United States uh, of the importance of the EU, especially when it comes to trade technology standards and norms and the idea that, you know, if you want to compete with China, it's not only going to be about uh, freedom of navigation in the South China Sea or military issues in the Strait of Taiwan. It is really going to be about what are the rules of globalization? What do we want in terms of uh, the future of uh, artificial intelligence, the openness of the, uh, the internet, uh, the question of data privacy? And of course, the EU has risen as a key actor in this sphere. And so we need a way to shape common norms on the transatlantic level. Now, it can, it, you know, it can go both ways. It could be uh, just a sort of bureaucratic instrument a talk shop, as you say, where we achieve nothing. I think if if they manage to make to to really broaden the scope and bring in uh, the private sector, whose uh, partnership will be absolutely central on this conversation, as well as civil society experts, mm. uh, uh, officials, democratic officials on, on both sides, I think you know it's going to take a long time because we have very different philosophical approaches to uh, mm. to these issues. As uh, you know, the different reactions on both sides of the Atlantic have shown after. For example, President Trump was deplatformed following January 6th. It was really fascinating to see the different cultural approaches between the United States and Europe on this. Uh, but what's really clear is that we both both sides have a strong interest in uh, in converging on on these issues and push back against digital authoritarianism coming from China or Russia. Okay. Well, on that positive note, we have to leave it there. Ben Haddad, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me.